0: On April fifteenth, two 2013, in Boston, on Patriot's Day, two bombs exploded at 2.49 in the afternoon. This was at the very end of the Boston Marathon, and it killed three people and injured 264 others. What was it like to be an ER physician that day? How did they respond? What did we as a country and the ER field learn from this experience? Today I speak with Dr. Kelly Kwok, who went to the University of Utah School of Medicine. She was there that day, and she'll speak about her experiences and what uh, we have learned. Helping you prepare for one of the most rewarding careers in the world. This is Talking Admissions and Med Student Life with your host, the Dean of Admissions at the University of Utah School of Medicine, Dr. Benjamin Chan. Welcome to another edition of Talking Admissions and Med Student Live. This is Dr. Chan. I've got a great guest today, Dr. Kwok, fellow classmate, alumni of the University of Utah School of Medicine, um, and uh, ER physician. So Dr. Kwok, uh, how did you choose to become an ER doctor?
1: Uh, there were a lot of factors that went into it. You know, I actually really like the idea of sort of being an old-fashioned doctor in the sense that anything that comes into me, I sort of have an idea about it. I sort of know a little bit about it. I can treat it. I I quite honestly don't have a lot of patients, so emergency medicine is perfect for people who don't have a lot of patients because you get all the tests you want that day. You actually try to find a diagnosis that day. You treat that day, and then you go ahead and discharge the patient back to their primary care provider for for further care. I really liked that aspect. Um, I also just like the fast pace. I have to say I like trauma. I like... Excitement, I get bored easily and the emergency department is never somewhere where you get bored.
0: Very true. So, you know, I interact with a lot of medical students. They tell me that, you know, sometimes they struggle in making their choice, you know, what kind of doctor they want to be. At what point during your four years did you kind of know that the ER field was for you?
1: Oh, I can I can really relate to that feeling because almost every rotation I did I thought, this is a good rotation and I like it. And I particularly liked OB and Peds. And I really thought sort of when I was setting up my fourth year I was going to be an obstetrician or a pediatrician. And, um, but I also had some, just a few reservations about those fields. And so I ended up thinking, well, I'm going to try emergency medicine. And and as you know, you really don't have a lot of exposure to the emergency department until that fourth year. So it's really difficult. And I went ahead and put, um, emergency medicine as my first elective during my fourth year. And it was very easy after that. I think after my first shift, I walked home and thought, oh yes, this is home for me.
0: Mm -hmm. Excellent. And so... What specifically, how, I mean, how, how did the University of Utah School of Medicine, how did it help you make that choice? How did it help you become a doctor?
1: Well, I have to say that people in all of my rotations were really great, and they were really great teachers, they were really great, great clinicians, and they were really ex- inspiring. Um, but particularly when I did emergency medicine, I have to you know, mention Susan Stroud. She took the time to really mentor me and to really help me, and to just sit down and talk to me about the field and, you know, even good programs, programs that weren't so good, you know, things that she likes about it, the pros, the cons. And I I just can't emphasize enough how willing people were there to mentor me. And I know that in some, you know, other institutions, people can get lost. I never felt that way here. People were always willing to sort of guide me and help me and direct me, which is really good. I don't have any other physicians in my family. So this was... A very new experience for me, and I was learning every step of the way. So
0: it sounds like great mentoring, great support, and really kind of helping you make that decision, and kind of ma- helping you find your way. It sounds like absolutely great. And so let's talk about ER residencies because there is there is a split. There, this is a very unique in medicine. There's, you know, people always ask me like, oh, what are the shortest residencies you can do? Which are the most longest? You know, and I always say, well, you know, pediatrics, family medicine. Some ER programs are three years, but some ER programs are four years, and this is kind of unique uh, in the medical field. So can you tell me more about yeah, that? Yeah,
1: it is really unique, and I think that sort of a lot of programs started out as four years, but then the funding only came for three years. So most of the new programs that you'll see coming almost exclusively are three-year programs, and then some of the older, more established programs are the ones who have really stuck with that four-year format. And what I tell people when they ask me that question, because I I was in residency leadership for quite some time and did a lot of interviews, is you're going to get good training, you know, wherever you go. Mm -hmm. And you're going to learn to be a good emergency physician. And you also, the rate of passing the boards after a three- and a four-year program, um, if you're you're a U.S. graduate, are the exact same. So you're going to get educated. I think the difference is is if you want to do academics Mm -hmm. or if you have a particular interest in something that you really want to develop that niche, a four-year program is a really nice option. For example, if you do a four-year program, you're going to have time to do some really significant international medicine if you want to. If you do a four-year program, you're going to have a chance to really get excellent at ultrasound if you want to. I know a lot of four-year program grads who actually got certified in ultrasonography um, during their residency – or if you're really gun ho on academics, you're going to have time to do a really great research project. Having said that, you can certainly do academics out of a three-year program. A lot of people will do a three-year program and then a fellowship. Um, but what I would say is it's a lot more important to find the program that this is the right fit for you and just to throw the three versus four years sort of out the door. If, if it's a good fit for you in that the residents are happy, the residents have you know interests similar to, similar to yours, and whatever your particular interest is in emergency medicine, whether it be education, whether it be international, whether it be uh, public health. Find a program that really fits your needs and you'll get a good education wherever you go. Excellent.
0: And it sounds like you ended up doing a four-year program. Correct? I did. Yep. You did a transitional here in Salt Lake City. I did. And then you did your three, the, the remaining three years of your ER program at Boston University, correct? Uh, yep. So tell me about your experience in Boston.
1: I had a great experience in Boston. So Boston Medical Center is this fantastic hospital. It's a merger of Boston University and Boston City Hospital. So it's really the safety net hospital in Boston. We had a huge indigent population we had a huge immigrant population Um, it is also the largest trauma center in uh, new england and it's also the largest volume emergency department in new england so i saw everything and i saw a lot of it and i really cannot say enough how much i appreciate the education that i got there i loved my time there and it was a really great experience Fantastic. And it sounds like, you
0: know, because we've been talking earlier, Dr. Kwok, and um, tell me about your experience with the Boston bombings. Um, And because you had a firsthand account, and I'm just fascinated to hear more about it.
1: Yeah, I mean, the Boston bombings were a really uh, unique and quite honestly, a really scary experience. This is something that in emergency medicine you train for. You do disaster drills, you do disaster medicine, and you learn about it. But to experience it firsthand is a really different experience. And I do think that all that training and all that, you know, background that we had really came into play that day. And another, you know, I also have to mention sort of just the unique situation of the city and that there's f- five level one trauma centers within mm-hmm. about a mile and a half of the blast. And Boston EMS was already at the scene. Mm-hmm. You know, the transport was unbelievable and it was an unbelievable response in that, you know, of all the injuries, there were only three fatalities, and those three fatalities happened at the scene.
0: And just to recap, um, the way I understand—again, I'm not a Boston native; neither are you, but you have more street cred than me because you live in Boston—is <laughs> um, that uh, this is a state holiday. It's called Patriots Day. So already, you're talking about lower numbers of people who are perhaps working in the hospitals, and it's uh, you know annual events that on Patriots Day in Boston they have the Boston Marathon. Yes, yeah, so Boston. Abs- ba- the Boston bombings were the two. Uh, the two bombings at the end of the Boston Marathon caught everyone off guard, terrorist attack, people I mean it was just kind of scary. I remember seeing the images on TV.
1: Yeah, it's a very unique it's a very unique and a very special day in Boston. It's the day that Paul Revere and William Da wrote out um to say that the British were coming. Mm-hmm. And it also was the day that the shot was heard around the world, which started the Revolutionary War. So since then they've had this holiday of the Patriots Day and it's awesome. Mm-hmm. It's the first day of school vacation week, so nobody's in school. It's considered a state holiday, so you know, there aren't really any scheduled ORs. You're on holiday staffing, meaning decreased nurse, okay. decreased techs, oftentimes decreased physicians as well. And also people are out of town. You know, people who have kids go out of town. So actually the um the chair of our emergency department and the chair of our trauma department were both out of town the day of the Boston bombing. So it was a really sort of unique day and unique situation and, and uh, an unbelievable sort of experience to go through.
0: So leading up to this event, which you can never plan for, um, I know like the hospital, uh, the hospital I worked at, there's a lot of training that goes involved for these type of events. What kind of training did you guys undergo and what worked and what didn't when yeah. it actually you need to use that training?
1: Yeah, absolutely. So... Um, There were, there were sort of two events that people really gave credit to when it came to training. And I think the first one that you have to talk about is September 11th events because I think that was the first time that people all of a sudden realized, wow, this can happen on our soil and it can happen in a major way and it can happen and completely take you by surprise. And September 11th is personal to Bostonians because, you know, a lot of people forget that those planes took off from Boston Logan. Mm -hmm. So a lot of people who were on the planes themselves were, you know, native Boston, Bostonian people. So, September 11th, all of a sudden, I think we woke up. And starting then, they had a bunch of disaster training sessions. And then the second thing that happened was the Colorado theater shootings. And the reason that was a wake up call was because the University of Colorado Hospital received 40 critical patients in one hour. And after that, you know, even in Boston, a couple grand round sessions were held that were saying, are we ready? Could we handle 40 critical care patients in one hour? And interestingly enough, within a year, we would find out whether we were ready or not. The things that I think worked really well actually was being involved in planning the disaster because when you're involved in planning something on that big scale, you just Mm-hmm. really learn it a lot better.
0: And just for me to interject, because yeah. I think people don't realize like, cause I think because of mass media or, you know, popular media, when you say critical patients, Mike's cause I did a couple of rotations in the ER, you know, most ERs can handle one, maybe two because that sucks up all the resources of an
1: ER, correct? So when you're talking like 40, that sounds like it's just overwhelming. It's yeah. really overwhelming. So we have at Boston Medical Center, we had three trauma rooms okay. and you know, there would be occasional not occasional nights. Like I said, it was the busiest trauma center in new England. So there would be occasional nights when we would have, you know, when gang shootings would happen and we would have like five to eight critical patients and it would be, Almost completely overwhelming. So the thought of having sort of 30 in one hour or 40 yeah. in one hour is really Because we're not talking just about doctors.
0: We're talking about the nurses, respiratory therapists, everyone,
1: hands-on deck. And, and quite yeah. honestly, ORs available yeah. and anesthesiologists available okay. and even the blood bank. You mm-hmm. know, it's it's very... So a lot of training sessions really happened in response to those. And we have to give those some credit for how we responded. And interestingly enough, I actually contacted some friends in New York and Chicago because those marathons were held just in, you know, the last few months months to see what happened differently with those marathons based on what happened in Boston. And there were huge changes made to both marathons and and to... How they staffed, so both marathons were held on Sundays, and they actually had full OR staffing despite it being a Sunday just based on what happened in Boston so unfortunately, these disasters do present an opportunity for us all to learn, and it hopefully is helping mm-hmm. us to be better prepared in the future
0: so what worked in Boston what what went according to plan and where was the where were those educational moments?
1: Afterwards? boy I'll tell you Boston EMS was unbelievable, mm-hmm. and you know part of it was just the bombers themselves. The time they chose to bomb was, um, and they did it deliberately to have the most people there. So a lot of people don't know the pa- the Red Sox actually play at about 10 or 11 in the morning on Patriots Day. And then everybody from Fenway Park pours out into the streets to cheer on the marathon runners. Kind of watch the end of the marathon. Absolutely. And so they think there's, they estimate around 500,000 people are on the streets of Boston when that happened. But because it happened, it was right before the change of shift, which was 3 p.m., which means... Physicians were coming in, and physicians hadn't left yet, in addition to nurses. So you actually had double staffing there, just Mm -hmm. based on the time. We heard about it. The first blast happened at 2.49, and we heard about it about 2.51. And we got our first patient just before 3. And so because of that, all of the physicians who would have left at 3 were still there, nurses, techs, etc. And all the new physicians coming on were there, too. And that was incredibly helpful that we had almost double the staffing. Um, so that worked incredibly well. You know, um, there was actually, you cannot underestimate the amount of help bystanders on scene. I, you probably saw the images where the blast happened and almost immediately people started tearing away fences to get to the victims. Yeah. And what they did is people tore off their shirts. They did whatever yeah. they had to do and tied tourniquets right at the scene. Yeah. And also there's a major medical tent a hundred yards from yeah. the blast with tons of physicians.
0: I think there's been a change in the mindset. It used to be, I know that like when there's a disaster, people are very hesitant to get involved, wait till the scene is safe, things like that, I think people recognize now that you go in... I mean, I, I think it speaks to the bravery of the Bostonians that people were rushing in helping, even unclear if there were more bombs or anything like that, because they realized those seconds can mean the difference between life and death. Yeah.
1: And they absolutely did. And and one another thing that people don't realize is almost immediately cell phone service and subway service were cut off because the subway would be a huge target and also cell phones they thought could be remote detonators. So you're talking about 500,000 people packed into this city Without subways to get them out and without cell phones to be able to contact their loved ones to find out if they were okay. Mm -hmm. And you're also talking about these first responders and the people in the medical tent running to get victims in and out of there while there are reports that there are bombs everywhere. Remember that there was a JFK fire that happened about 3.15 p.m. and at that, point, that
0: was a library, correct? At the yeah.
1: library, yeah. At that point, we actually thought that was another bomb. And at that point, we thought there are bombs all over the city and we're in big trouble. So, so the cr- these responders are going all the while there are reports of bombs everywhere. And don't forget also, everybody, those 500,000 people, many people just dropped their bags and ran. Mm-hmm. And every bag has to be treated wow. as a potential explosive device. So it was, it was unbelievable the amount of incredible medical care that came out of a scene of the uttermost chaos.
0: So 3 o'clock, first patients start rolling in. Like, what was the ER look like? What's going on? What do they do different uh, yeah. than a normal ER would function at the moment?
1: Yeah, so I wasn't actually there um, in the emergency department at that point. But essentially what you're trained to do and what we did is you're trained to create a space just essentially, all patients in the emergency department who you know are going to be admitted go upstairs. It doesn't matter where they are in the workup, they go upstairs and they go away. Anybody whose workup can be completed the next day gets discharged, and you ask them to come back the next day. There was an announcement made in the waiting room that said there has been an explosion at the Boston Marathon. There, we expect many critical patients to arrive shortly. Mm-hmm. If you can be seen tomorrow, please come back tomorrow. And people got up and left out of the waiting room. So essentially what happened was they tried to clear space. Now, the thought is when it comes to a disaster that the first patients you're going to see are the walking wounded because the thought is that it takes EMS some time to get there. That wasn't the case. The absolute most critical patients came this time. And that's because EMS was already at the scene.
0: Okay.
1: And so, so essentially patients one, so two, you am, got the most severe right off. The absolutely. Okay. Patients one, two, and three arrived all at the same time in the same ambulance. They mm-hmm. had, had tourniquets put on them, put significant in the ambulance. Trauma, significant. Injuries. Absolutely. Okay. All of them had amputations. Okay. Um, and, and, it, and those three patients immediately went into, our trauma rooms, but that was the end of our trauma rooms, and we still had a lot more patients coming. So essentially, they cleared out almost one complete side and most of a second side and put all critical patients on those two sides.
0: I know it's frustrating to me that, you know, and frustrated is not the right word, but as as our, our system develops there's more and more reliance on electronic medical records and things like that. How, do, how does the EMR factor into these situations where you have to make really quick decisions and you don't have time yeah. to upload people's health insurance and all that kind of stuff?
1: Yeah, so. well, that was one of the things we learned very quickly was the electronic medical record became completely obsolete. There okay. was no way that we could register these patients quick enough. And also, when you think about... These absolutely critical patients who need blood right now, who need maybe antibiotics right now, who need, you know, imaging right now. There's, it's just impractical to think that a physician is going to run from their bedside to the computer, put an order in, run back. And not to mention that, you know, many, many, many hospital workers poured into the emergency department to help. And so the thought of running to the computer, logging in under your name, getting in and putting the order, then running back to the patient, it was totally, totally uh, not possible at all. And so, What we learned and took away from this is now Boston Medical Center has a disaster cart. There's a hundred files in it. Those hundred files have a bracelet with a number and every file, every paper in that file is stamped with the same number. And when a disaster happens, the cart comes out, a patient comes in, they get a bracelet with a number. There is a, um, order sheet that goes on their bed and then there's also a, um, a sort of chronological sheet that says everything that happened mm-hmm. to that patient. So we've
0: kind of come back full circle. Because I remember in the 1950s and 60s, that chart would always be at the patient's bed. <laughs> exactly. And like, you know, you would do rounds, you'd exactly. pick it up and flip through it. So, yep. And like now in a circle. disaster,
1: that's what would happen okay, again. Interesting. And that way you could keep track of exactly what happened to every ba- patient because there was some confusion about who had received antibiotics, who had received a tetanus, who was going where, mm-hmm. that sort of thing. Um, but that's, and then it will be retrospectively mm-hmm. entered into the electronic medical record later on. What
0: other educational moments were taken away from this, you know, this horror, this tragedy?
1: You know, I, I have to say that the most educational thing for me was the response of a community to a terrible tragedy. You know, this evil event that was perpetrated by these two victims, um, you cannot imagine the outpouring of community support for the medical professionals, for the victims, for just the community, community themselves. You know, we had first graders who made pictures and sent them to us. We had um, all the other emergency departments in surrounding cities sent
0: mm-hmm.
1: food and gifts, etc. cetera. And you talked about um, blood
0: banks. I assume there's a large outpouring. There was a large outpouring blood. of
1: people yeah. donating blood. You know, mm-hmm. the Boston one fund was created to raise money for the victims and re- cre- and raised an unbelievable amount of money. You know, it was just, it was such an evil event. And then, but you could just see the goodness totally overwhelmed the evil after this happened. And that was a really neat experience Mm -hmm. for me. I mean,
0: yeah, I agree. Yeah. You see humanity's worst by these horrible acts, but then you see this outpouring of love and then you see the best side of humanity. And we really did. You saw
1: the absolute most beautiful best side of Boston you would ever see after that event. That's great. Well, we have a few more minutes and let's
0: talk about something a little less serious. Dr. Quack. Absolutely. When I, I remember our med school days together, you were the biggest, biggest Boise state football fan known to mankind please tell me how this came about and you went to Boise State, correct?
1: Absolutely. You, so both my parents grew up in Boise, and actually when I was a kid would take me to Boise State football and basketball games, and I was pretty darn hooked. We actually moved to Montana later, but I still was the world's biggest Boise State fan. And just so you know, uh, if you don't know, Dr. Chan's a psychiatrist, and it's certainly possible that at some point I will have to seek your help about how much I care whether or not this team <laughs> wins and loses. Yes, because I do remember you you, <laughs> you had very, a lot of memorabilia from Boise State, yes, yes. Um, a lot of Boise State pride. My well, children dressing. Game day gear Every game day That's
0: that's beautiful Um, And let's just talk Like you know And I I exchanged Some emails with you Before this podcast There was a There was a Recent change With the Point State football program What's your thoughts And tell tell everyone What what happened
1: Well I'll tell you So Chris Peterson Has been our coach Now for um, For eight years He's been Absolutely fantastic It's been an Unbelievable And Unprecedented Unprecedented uh, experience in Boise State football, and he actually initially interviewed for the USC job. And I was a little nervous that he would go. He's been there's been some indications that he maybe is feeling like there's another challenge, but he he bowed out of that discussion. And when he decided to do that, I actually thought we were pretty safe. Mm-hmm. I felt like if he didn't take USC, we were pretty safe. And then I got a text a couple days later from my best friend, who's also a diehard Boise State fan, and she said, "What do you think about Coach Pete?" And I. I felt like I'd been sucker punched. I wanted to throw up. And it turns out that he is looking for a new adventure at University of Washington. So I absolutely wish him all the best and appreciate all that he did. But... Mm. The golden lining of this is one of our offensive coordinator during our absolute best years um, had moved on to initially to be the offensive coordinator at Texas and then next to be the head coach at Arkansas State. And now he's coming back to coach. And this is actually a pretty exciting thing. He's not Coach Beat, but mm-hmm. he's a Boise native, played at Capitol High um walked on to Boise State and played backup quarterback uh, at Boise State and then became you know was a graduate assistant then was a quarterback and really worked his way up and loves Boise and is Brian Harson Brian Harson and yeah. if anybody can sort of continue the legacy the legacy, the this, this yeah. is the guy yeah. and actually interestingly enough my friend when she texted me that of course I immediately got on to espn.com and com, and then I emailed her back and said let's interview Harson mm-hmm. so I am shocked that they didn't consult me, but if they had, he would have been my first choice. So, so
0: I guess the question I have to ask ne- next, Doctor Kwok, let's pretend Boise State football comes calling and wants you to join their staff. Would would you do it in a heartbeat? Yes, I would. Okay, <laughs> <laughs> that's that's what I thought. Yes. Like, all roads I, lead. I love yeah. medicine,
1: but if ESPN called and wanted me to be a sideline college football reporter. No. No, no, I'm not talking about ESPN. I'm talking Boise State. Boise, I would go to. Okay. Yes. All right. Absolutely. I'm looking forward to seeing that in the next couple of years.
0: All right. Well, thanks, Dr. Kwok. appreciate you taking time. My pleasure. Thanks for having me. All right. Thanks for listening to Talking Admissions and Med Student Life with Dr. Benjamin Chan, the ultimate resource to help you on your journey to and through medical school. A production of the Scope Health Sciences Radio, online at thescoperadio.com.